Let's pray as we come to God's word here this morning. Lord, we would pray that you would reveal your glory to us through your word this morning. You tend to it as it is read and as it is preached, that we might get a glimpse of you, of your desire and your will for our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. This is the holy, inerrant word of God. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. absolutely loved uh, preaching through this book, uh, through Colossians, as we come to the, the end of it here this week. And I want to do it again in the future, but go much slower, but I didn't want to test your attention span uh, by going slower as we uh, go through this season together. But we're at the close of this book, and as Paul does at the close of his books, he is going to deliver greetings from the people that he is with to the people he's writing to. And then he's also going to say his own greetings to these people, and he's going to acknowledge those that he wants to acknowledge that he is writing to. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to take a, a look at each of these people that he mentions. There are 12 people by my count here, including the Apostle Paul and including the brothers at Laodicea. So he mentions here Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Jesus who is called Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, the brothers at Laodicea, Nympha, Archippus, and finally Paul himself. I want to look at each 
of them this morning, each person. Makes sense that they are each a person, and maybe that doesn't need to be said, but let me say it another way as I was thinking about it this morning. Uh, Each of these people are a person who the Lord used for his kingdom purposes. That is, each played a role and had a role to play. It's easy for you and I to read over a list like this and think, well, this is just a bunch of names, and here is Paul greeting, sending greetings, and, and sending greetings from these people to these people, and acknowledging these people that he's writing to, and kind of forget that these are real, historical, actual people that serve the kingdom, serve the Lord. So I want to look at each and then conclude with three principles that flow from these final greetings this morning. He first begins by mentioning the people delivering the letter. You will remember that the Apostle Paul is in Rome and he is imprisoned there in Rome. And so he can't journey to Colossae himself, so he is sending letters to Colossae, and he is also going to send a letter to Philemon, a member of the church there in Colossae. And we also think he's going to, he's sending a third letter, the a letter that he mentions here in verse 16, a letter that he has written to the Laodiceans, or the church in Laodicea. And he's sending these three letters by two people. And they are the first two people that he mentions here in this passage, the two individuals being Tychicus and Onesimus. Tychicus is the first mentioned. He is a man that we know very little about. We know that he was from the province of Asia, and we see that in the book of Acts in Acts 20. He will travel with Paul on many of his missionary journeys, and he will be a constant traveling companion of him. He will go with him on his first and last trip there to Jerusalem. Paul will also mention Tychicus in 2 Timothy and Titus, and in both of those uh, books, he mentions Tychicus as the one who is delivering a message. So Tychicus, uh, for our intents and purposes, we could say he was a kind of errand boy of the Apostle Paul. Uh, He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't even a teacher from what we can tell. He wasn't a preacher. And yet here in Colossians and with almost identical language in Ephesians, Paul says of him, He calls him a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I absolutely love that. Here is the Apostle Paul, the the, the great apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's in the upper echelons of Christian society and the church. He's been gifted by the Lord in a mighty way. And yet Paul sees Tychicus as a brother, and he says a faithful minister and a fellow servant. Not Paul's servant. He says a fellow servant. That is, Tychicus and I, we are on the same plane. We stand on the same level ground. We are both servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is an apostle, and He is my errand boy, fellow servants. And he gives that wonderful commendation of Tychicus. He calls him faithful. He's faithful. 
faithful in what he's been given to do. He's not a preacher. He's, he's not a teacher. He's not a pastor. And yet he is of equal worth and equal importance. And he is faithful in what he has been called to do. Onesimus is the second person mentioned. He was with Tychicus. He brought these letters from, from Paul to Colossae. And you will remember Onesimus. We have referred to him multiple times throughout this letter as we've journeyed our way through it. And Paul was in the upper echelons of Christian society, and Tychicus was, was somehow a servant of his and was serving as a messenger of his. Onesimus is on the very bottom rung. Because as you remember, Onesimus was a slave. And he had ran away from the Apostle Paul, or from Philemon, and he had ran to Rome, most likely to go to the big city so that he could hide himself in the crowds there. And it appears that he even stole from his slave master Philemon when he ran away. And then he's in Rome, and by God's wonderful good providence, Philemon comes across the path of the Apostle Paul. Through Paul's teaching and preaching, Philemon comes to saving faith. And so Paul is sending, Philemon, sending Onesimus back to Philemon and Colossae, and he is going to give instruction to Philemon that, look, I, I am not going to force you to free Onesimus. It has to be of your own free choice, and yet he is gently going to encourage Philemon to free Onesimus, who he says you must receive back as more than a slave because now he is a brother. He's a brother. And I love even here how Paul is setting the stage for Onesimus' reception in Colossae. He's a runaway slave, he's a thief, and Paul uses almost identical language to that which he said about Tychicus. He says, Onesimus is faithful and a beloved brother. He's faithful. A runaway slave who has been a thief and stolen. And Paul says, he's faithful. He's a brother. He doesn't repeat one set of words that he said about Tychicus. He, he doesn't say that he's a fellow servant or a slave. I find that interesting. I think Paul is doing this knowingly. So Nesimus, a slave of Philemon's, and so he doesn't use that designation when he's talking about Onesimus as he did of Tychicus. Would have caused quite a bit of difficulty or confusion. No, instead Paul lifts Onesimus up before the eyes of these Colossian Christians by saying he is one of you. He's one of you. He says, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, is one of you. The implication. You are to love him. You are to accept him. You are to forgive him. You are to treat him on an equal field. Be thankful. No matter what he has done, no matter what he is, he is more than anything else by God's working and God's willing our brother. He's a man that was on the very bottom of the social ladder and society's ladder, and now Paul says, look, he's one of you. He, he belongs to you. 
acceptance. Beloved brother, Paul says in verse 8 that he is sending Tychicus and Onesimus back that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. I love Paul, and one of the reasons that I so love Paul is because he loves other people so well. Think about Paul sitting in that, that Roman prison, whatever that looked like. You know, he ends this book by saying, remember my chains. He is in some form of chains. And, and here he's sending these two that have encouraged him, that, that Tychicus and Onesimus, who he said have refreshed his soul, that have encouraged him. He is now sending them back to Colossae. Why? Because he's concerned about the Colossae. Paul's in prison, and he's concerned about the Colossians. So he sends them back. And yet Paul has never been to the church in Colossae. He doesn't know these people. He's not been there. He didn't preach at this church. He didn't found this church. This isn't Ephesus. And yet he has concern for those people of God. He cares enough that he sends these two individuals who have clearly blessed him and ministered to him faithfully by his side. He's willing to part with them so that the Colossians might be encouraged. Why? Because Paul has a greater vision and love than his own backyard. He didn't plant this church. He never preached in Colossae, but he loves more than his church. He loves the church. The best gifts we often give are the best gifts among us and that's one another we give our blessing as our children journey to the mission field or we send a family out to help start a church plant or we send off one of our pastors to labor in another part of the vineyard and as Paul blessed these Colossians so we bless the greater church often by sending out the best among us our own personal sacrifice. Paul now mentions greetings from six of his current companions. Three are Jewish, Aristarchus, Mark, Jesus, Justice, and then three are Gentile, Epaphras and Luke and Demas. And the first that Paul mentions in verse 10 is Aristarchus. He calls him my fellow prisoner, literally my fellow prisoner of war. Aristarchus will first appear in Acts 19, and it seems that he came to saving faith during Paul's preaching in Thessalonica. And he, like Tychicus, will become a traveling companion of Paul's, and we will see him in the book of Acts in Ephesus when that, uh, when that riot erupts and all of the Ephesians are gathering together and they're, they're yelling out, great is Artemis, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and you remember they begin to riot, and it says that they pulled two men out of the temple, and it was Gaius, and it was here, it was Aristarchus. So Aristarchus is a man who suffered for the sake of Christ. We read quickly past his name, and yet he is one of these heroes in the faith in the first century of the church that was beat for the sake of Christ, and was apparently imprisoned with Paul here in Rome for the sake of Christ. 
We don't know anything else about him, but we know that here is a man who faithfully served Christ and the, the commission that was given to him to the point of suffering. Really, we only know him in relation to Paul, don't we? It's about uh, we're in heaven someday and we run across Aristarchus I'm Aristarchus. Oh, yeah, you're Aristarchus who was with Paul. It's associated with Paul. Just a little footnote. The next mention is Mark, and it's very similar. Mark receives the designation of the cousin of Barnabas. Now, you know Mark, maybe even more so than Barnabas, because he wrote the Gospel of Mark, but during the church at this time, Barnabas would have been the well-known person. Barnabas would have been one of the most key figures in the early church, along with Paul and Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. Barnabas would have been the other, that son of encouragement. And so Mark was always Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. I was at a church in Grand Rapids a number of weeks ago, about three or four weeks ago, they'd asked me to come preach. And so I uh, went to preach, and as often happens, uh, before you get up to preach and you're a guest preacher, a, the local pastor will introduce you to the congregation. And so that pastor came up, and he said, our guest preacher today is Reverend Jason Halopoulos. He's an associate pastor at University Reformed Church, where Kevin DeYoung used to minister. And uh, I got up after he said that, and I said, uh, you know, it used to be wherever I went to preach, it was, uh, this is Reverend Jason Alopoulos, associate pastor at University Reformed Church, where Kevin DeYoung is the pastor. Now it is just, this is where he used to pastor. And I said, it's my joy to be linked and identified with my dear friend, a man I love and respect. And so I imagine it was for Mark. He was the cousin of Barnabas. But Mark has his own story, doesn't he? You remember that Mark, or as he is called sometimes John Mark, he, he traveled with Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey, and you'll remember that John Mark, that he abandoned Paul and Barnabas, and he went back to Jerusalem from where he came. And Paul saw this as betrayal. So John Mark was a marked man, as we would say. And so when Paul and Barnabas were getting ready to head out on their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take his cousin John Mark, and Paul would have nothing to do with it. And so they'll split, and Barnabas and John Mark will go one way, and Paul and Silas will go the other way. But Mark is a beautiful picture of growing in godliness and commitment to Christ. We are not what we shall be, so don't jump too quick to a conclusion about what someone can or will do for the sake of the kingdom based upon their current makeup. God is in the business of changing people, and Mark will be changed. He shows his worth as he's laboring with Barnabas on that missionary journey, so much so that then Paul will pick up John Mark, and John Mark will become a constant traveling companion of Paul's. But not just Paul's. Peter will pick up John Mark and take him with him. 
So here you have John Mark who, who eventually becomes a second or third tier leader in the entire Christian church. He will serve the key figures of Barnabas and Paul and Peter. Man that has changed. Man that is used for the sake of the kingdom, for the glory of God. But maybe though at this time Mark still had a solid reputation from abandoning Paul on that first missionary journey because maybe that news had reached the ears of those in Colossae. I think that at least appears to be the case here because either he is a man with a marred reputation or he has no reputation because Paul tells them that if he comes to you, welcome him. He actually needs to instruct the church at Colossae, look, Christians are to be marked by hospitality. Why would he need to tell them to welcome John Mark? Because they'd heard about him. He's a man you can't trust. He abandoned the Apostle Paul. Oh, Paul says he's a changed man. Allow for people to change. And welcome them in light of their change in Christ. And you thank God for that. Let's welcome them. He then sends greetings from Jesus, who is called Justice. Now, Jesus was a common Jewish name, but he probably went by Justice as a way of honoring Christ as he came to Christian faith and not going by that same name of his Savior. And, and many Jews at this time would have adopted a Greek name like this. But here is a man that we know hardly anything about, except that he was a Jewish Christian. And that is quite significant, and it is quite a commitment. And Paul points that out as he commends these three men with a kind of sad commentary there. He, he says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Men of the circumcision, meaning Jews. He uses this phrase, I think, to, to show that this was no small commitment, because you will remember that there are people that are following around Paul and and they're saying, look, he's not concerned about the circumcision. He, he's not concerned about the Jewish law. And here you have these Christians that are abandoning the Jewish law. And so any Jew that was affiliating with Paul and adhering to his message was, was ostracized. He was forsaken. It could mean losing your family losing your job, losing your culture, losing your very identification with all that you've known. So Paul calls them, these Jews, he says, among my fellow workers of the kingdom of God, these are all that I have. And they're heroes, each of them. Just a little name here, but heroes. This is a note of sadness from Paul. He will mention in Romans how he longs for his own people, the Jewish people, to come to saving faith. And he's rightly disappointed that here are the people that had the Old Testament scriptures. They knew of the Messiah that was to come, and they continue to reject him when he has come. So Paul, just in a note of sadness here, says these are the only ones 
I love that he points out that they comfort him. Because it's those little glimmers of hope that often sustain us. And they no doubt gave Paul hope that one day his own people might be saved through Christ. He then moves to the three Gentiles that are still with him. He mentions Epaphras in verse 12, the very man who had preached the gospel to these Colossians and created the church by God's grace in Colossae. Epaphras would have also probably preached in Laodicea and there in Hierapolis as it's referred to there in verse 12 and following and would have been the key figure in that region for the Christian faith. And as you may remember, the Colossian church had sent Epaphras all the way to the Apostle Paul in Rome because they wanted to encourage Paul. And Epaphras is bringing some kind of uh, maybe food stuff or blankets or clothing for the Apostle Paul and then also to check on him. So he will say, you know, you have sent your very heart to me. So Paul is returning back greetings from Epaphras to them. And that's why Paul says he is one of you. He's one of you. I love that. The exact same phrase that he used of Onesimus. Imagine how this goes through the Colossians' mind as they're reading this, as they're all standing there, and Philemon's standing there, and here is this slave Onesimus who has come back and just handed this letter to him, and they're gathered together in worship, and they're reading this letter, and he's just said of Onesimus, he's one of you the very lowest rung on the ladder. And then he says of Epaphras, the man that helped plant this church and led us all to saving faith, he's one of you. And just in a very subtle way, Paul's putting them on an even playing field. He's one of you. Just like Onesimus, equal footing with Christ. Paul says that Epaphras is a servant of Christ Jesus. And then points out the great ministry of Epaphras in verse 12 that he's currently engaged in. He said he is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Epaphras wasn't content to preach the good news of Christ and see all of these Colossians and Laodiceans and Hierapolians, whatever you would call them, come to saving faith. He wanted to see them mature grow in Christ. It echoes, I think, Paul's own words there in Colossians earlier when he said in verse 28 and 29, him we proclaim warning and teaching everyone in order that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Same goal. Epaphras is laboring in that by prayer. So though he is apart from them, though he is distant from them bodily, they are present in his heart, they are present in his prayers, and he is toiling and struggling for them upon his knees. Absence from one another does not hinder our ministries to one another. We can always pray for one another. Paul then gives quick greetings from Luke in verse 14, who he calls the beloved physician. Luke was a constant traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He is mentioned by Paul at the end of the book of Philemon, along with Epaphras and Mark and Aristarchus again. And he's also mentioned by Paul in 2 Timothy 4 when he says, Luke alone is with me. Luke was clearly an educated man. He had some learning. He had learning in medicine, which would have been very rudimentary at this time. But 
Luke was apparently a good physician, and it seems like he was probably in Rome here tending to Paul's physical body as he was in prison. Now, we know, we feel like we know a little more about Luke because he is the author of the Gospel of Luke, and we will often see that as we read through the Gospel of Luke, as Paul is on his different journeys, the personal pronoun will change from he to we as Luke includes himself in the story. And of course, he also writes the book of Acts. He was a, a close friend and a close support to Paul. And we are the benefactors of Luke's ministry as he went around and interviewed people and wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts of Theophilus. But Paul then mentions demons. Notice he's the only one of all of these 12 people that Paul will mention that he makes no commentary upon demons. He makes no mention of his character. He makes no allusion to his faithfulness in his ministry. He makes no comment upon his ministry to and for Paul. He says nothing about demons. just mentions his name. And that's no mistake. Demas often goes through my mind as a kind of warning. Uh, I think of Demas an awful lot. Demas uh, is mentioned again at the end of 2 Timothy in that final greeting. And there Paul will say to Timothy, he will say, Demas in love with the present world has deserted me. And it appears that, that Paul had some kind of foreshadowing of the fact that Demas was going to wander away from the faith, that he was going to wander away from the ministry that he had been called to, that he was going to wander away from his Savior, and so he makes no commentary upon demons. There have already been doubts flowing through his mind about this man. Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. Demas. He witnessed the Apostle Paul's ministry. He, he sat under his preaching and teaching the greatest teacher the church has ever known besides Christ. He had watched him do miracles. He had watched him be persecuted for the sake of the faith. He had traveled with him and seen people converted and churches established. And he walks away from Christ. Walked away from Christ love of the world. We have a warning in Demas. Persevere and stay focused on the brilliance of Christ and turn a blind eye to the glitter of the world around us. Stay focused on Christ. Paul then asks that greetings be given to the brothers at Laodicea and later in verse 16 he'll recommend that this letter should be passed on to that church, and the letter that he wrote to Laodicea should be given to the church at Colossae, and they should read that letter in that fashion, a letter that we've never seen, that we've never read. Paul references it, like another letter we know that he wrote to the Corinthian church that we've never seen. Now, Paul understood that these letters were going to be read by more than just the people he was sending them to. In some way, in his mind, he already understood that there was going to be a circular appeal to these letters, and they were going to have some weight and authority. So 
He says, the one I sent to them, you read. The one that I sent to you, you take it to them and have them read. They belong to one another. These churches were not in isolation from one another. Paul then, in verse 15, asks that greetings be passed on to Nympha and the church in her house. Nympha is a woman's name and clearly is one of the places in her house was where one of the churches met. We know that the church in Colossae met in Philemon's home. So most think, and I would agree, that Nympha, it, it, it's, it's apparent that the church in Laodicea met in her home. She must have been a widow or she must have been a woman of some means that it was called her house, but the church gathered there. All the churches in the first century there would gather in houses because they weren't allowed to build public worship spaces. So the church in Laodicea apparently met in her house. She was a woman that extended hospitality for the church in this regard. A woman. This is no small thing. I don't think much of it when we read it here, but here is Paul speaking directly to a woman, Nympha, and he is commending her on the same level that he is commending all of these males for her service of the church. Extending hospitality, these, as the Christian faith does in the scriptures and it has done in history, he is lifting the head of women. Lastly, Paul addresses Archippus. And Archippus, we know from the book of Philemon that he was the son of Philemon. And Paul has one simple instruction for Archippus. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. After all these farewells, after all of these greetings, this is where Paul lands, and it's purposeful. And I want to consider this admonition as we close and, and, and look at this. There's a reason that he saves this for the final comment besides signing his own name. He leaves this. He sent greetings from each of his fellow workers, and he's noted the faithfulness of all of these different people that he has labored beside, and he's noting the faithfulness of the people that he's writing to. Again, think back through the language with me. Tychicus, verse 7, beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant. Onesimus, faithful and beloved brother. Aristarchus, fellow prisoner. Mark and Aristarchus and Justice, my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Verse 12, Epaphras, a servant of Christ Jesus. And then Paul notes his ministry of prayer, doesn't he? And then Luke, the beloved physician. And then he says to Archippus, after all of these commendations, he says, see that you, Archippus, you fulfill the ministry that you received in the Lord. You. You understand, dear Christian. Three points. First, no matter who you are in Christ, no matter your background, your makeup, your ethnicity, your gender, God has given you a role to play in his 
kingdom. Here in this passage, we have Jews and we have Greeks. We have men and we have women. We have old and we have young. We have educated and we have uneducated. And each given a role to serve for the sake of the kingdom. Every person in Christ has a role to play in the grand kingdom drama. None are excluded. You think back over this book with me, and you think, ah, everything that we have been through. I think in Colossians 1, as he is giving this thanksgiving to God for what God has done in Christ Jesus, and, and then he walks through who Christ is, this image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who created all things, who sustains all things, who rules over everything that is visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, the one that is before all things, he says, the one that is the head of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, he, just exalting Christ. And he goes on and he points out that you have been united to Christ. This one who is the creator and the sustainer and, and the savior of all, this is the one that you've been united to, Christ. And so he speaks about us being alive in Christ, clinging closely to Christ, that we are to put off the old self and we are to put off all those deeds of the flesh and we are to put on the new self in Christ and we are to live to the glory of Christ because we're linked to Christ. Christ has broken into this world in the incarnation, and with him, with the king's coming, the kingdom has come. And you now are servants of that kingdom. You've been united to the king. And you are being sent out to faithfully minister according to his purposes. And that's what Paul is ending with all of these different people the purpose in the kingdom the great kingdom drama that has entered the world and you and I are actors in this story especially old people I often have this conversation with uh, but I bet I've had it a dozen times in ministry usually somebody I gotta go high because some of you will get offended someone in their 90s that will say and usually their spouse has passed and their children are away and grandchildren don't come see them and their body is aching and they say I just don't know why I'm here because God still has a purpose a player in this grand kingdom drama you're still here because he still has purpose for you but our second point though God has a role for each of his people in the grand kingdom drama he doesn't use us all in the same way God employs different people for different reasons in the kingdom we aren't all apostle Paul's we can't be but we have our role to play 
I wonder if you've heard of the Countess of Huntington. Ever heard of her? When did she live? What did she do? Or I wonder if you've ever heard of William Joseph Harold. William Joseph Harold, ever heard of him? When did he live? What did he do? And yet, they served the kingdom in mighty ways. What if I said the name George Whitfield? Do you know that name? Most of us do. George Whitfield, the great evangelist that was really the, the, the mouth for the first great awakening that, that led to the salvation of tens of thousands of people here in the American colonies and in England used mightily by the Lord. But do you know how he did that ministry? How did he afford to travel back and forth across the Atlantic all those years? Who paid his bills? Who provided for his food? The Countess of Huntington. She underwrote his entire ministry. But what about William Joseph Harold? A little known figure, but a man who impacted the world just by fulfilling the ministry that was given to him. What if I said the name Charles Haddon Spurgeon? that name? Do. Considered the prince of preachers, right? Great preacher of the 19th century. That probably, whether you know it or not, if you are a Christian in this room, you have been impacted by him, either directly by reading some of his sermons or reading some of his writings or because he has impacted people that have ministered to him. It's a long trail. It was a night that Charles Haddon Spurgeon was preaching at an event, and while he was preaching, uh, there was supposed to be somebody there that was to record his sermon, and of course, this was before audio devices, and so it took somebody with a fast mind and a fast pen to write it down, and he got done preaching, and the person didn't show up that was supposed to do it. And Spurgeon said, this was a colossal waste of time. He was disappointed. And someone overheard him and said, why are you upset, Spurgeon? And he said, because this was one that I needed to have recorded. And they said, well, well, Harold is here. He said, who is Harold? Someone said, well, William Joseph Harold never misses a word when you preach. He writes it all down, was the response of someone. And so they pull William Joseph Harold to him, and they introduce Spurgeon to Mr. Harold, and sure enough, he had taken down every single word that Spurgeon had said. And thus began a close friendship, and William Joseph Harold will become Spurgeon's secretary. And William Joseph Harold, all those sermons that we have of Spurgeon's are him sitting there writing. Spurgeon would go to William Joseph Harold and he would say, look, I'm going to preach on the book of Jeremiah. Lay out all my books that have to do with Jeremiah. And so Spurgeon had a 12,000 volume personal library. And so William Joseph Harold would get all of those books and lay them out for Spurgeon. There were weeks that Spurgeon, uh, his hands would hurt so badly that he couldn't write. And so he would have William Joseph Harold write letters for him and he would dictate them. And there were some weeks that he wrote 500 personal letters to Spurgeon. Incredible ministry. Not a preacher, not a teacher, not an apostle. A secretary. And 
impacted the world for the sake of Christ. How often we look at the Spurgeons and the Whitfields and the Apostle Pauls of the world and we are amazed at their service in the kingdom, but the kingdom doesn't just need Spurgeons, it doesn't just need Whitfields and Pauls, it needs the Countesses of Huntingdon's and the Mr. Harold's and the Tychicus's and the Nymphas and the Archippuses. It needs it. I think about Archippus here and I, I imagine, who knows? but I imagine that he was growing lax. Lax in his responsibilities for Christ and what he was charged to do. Maybe he was tired. Maybe he was just discouraged because he didn't see fruitfulness from his ministry, or maybe he was envious. Maybe he looked at the gifts that someone else had or the position that someone else had in the body of Christ, and he thought, I want that, and he gave up doing what he was charged to. I don't know. Paul reminds him, you have a ministry. You fulfill it. The Lord's given you a gift, Archippus. He's given you a gift. You've received it. You have a calling in the Lord. Fulfill the ministry you have received. And that's our final point. We each have a ministry before us, and our duty is to be faithful in it. Be faithful in what we have been given. Not to grow lax. Not to give in to tiredness. Not to cave to jealousy and envy of the roles of others that they've been given, but just to faithfully labor where we are at with what the Lord has given us. As a mother friend, as a counselor, as a teacher, as a neighbor, as an usher, as a Sunday school teacher, just faithfully labor with what you've been given. Friends, we all have a role to play. I need you, and you need me. And the kingdom needs us. Not that we're essential. God can do his work without us. But he chooses to do it through us. So let's be faithful. Serving in the role that he has appointed and that we have been equipped for. Not shrinking, not complaining, not growing lax, but fulfilling, being faithful. Think of our own Lord and Savior. He said, I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And I, you see over and over in the Gospels where he sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He knows that that is what he is called to. That is his ministry. He is going to fulfill it at any cost. Peter said, no, no, Lord. No, you, you can't suffer in this way. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Don't you dare take me off my ministry what I've been called to. Fulfill what's been given to you. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each of us. That is, within the body of Christ, each individual, notice these are all individuals, had a part to play. 
I have my part to play. You have your part to play. We've been gifted, each of us. We've been gifted, each of us, for the benefit of the whole. We labor for the whole. about that grace that was given to Paul. It's it's a mighty grace, apostleship. It's not the gift that Tychicus had or Onesimus or Nympha had, but they also were also given grace for the benefit of the body. And Paul was saying in Romans 12, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, he then says this, let us use them. Let us use them. We want to use them for the common good. We are to be serving one another for the good of the whole, each fulfilling our role. I got to close with it. I I, I, I haven't shared this for three or four years, but this is what always goes through my head, so you have to bear with me. You've probably heard it before. But when I think of this, and I'll close with this, I always think of Simon Fervet. Uh, some of you have heard of Simon Prevet because I've told this story probably four years ago. Uh, but most of you would not know Simon Prevet at all. Uh, Simon Prevet uh, was a name that I came across to the first church that I went to pastor in. It was a church in, in North Carolina. And as I've done with different the different churches that I've served, I took those first couple of months and I journeyed around to all the older people in the church and I just sat down and I said tell me tell me about the church I just want to know its history and as the older people in the congregation told me about the church I kept hearing a name over and over again it was the name Simon Prevet and as I sat down especially with these 70 and 80 year old men the name that they kept referencing was Simon Prevet now you would think maybe Simon Prevet was was an early pastor in the church, or maybe he was a, a, a early preacher in the church, or he planted the church, or something along those lines, but that wasn't the case. By all accounts, everyone gave the exact same testimony about Simon Prevet. He was a man of small stature, he never spoke in public, and he was just meek. And yet his name came up over and over and over again. So Simon Prevet. Simon Prevet, in the early days of that church, he was an elder. But he wasn't the kind of elder that would stand up here and teach. But this is what he would do on Sunday afternoons. Sunday afternoons, after the church service was over, he invited all the boys, the young boys of the church, over to his house. And so there would be 12, 14, 15 young boys, seven and eight-year-old boys, that he would go through the woods with and they would go on hikes through the woods and he would talk to them about different trees and different plants and different animals that they saw and then he would talk about Christ and every single one of those young boys came to saving faith and those young boys became the second generation of elders at that church they were the 70 and 80 year old men that I was putting down in interview. Simon, a a meek man, a small man, would never speak in public, was scared to. 
decided one Sunday morning uh, before the service I was recruiting for nursery workers. And uh, so I decided to show the church what the impact of one man could have. I just had a heart for kids. And so I said uh, that Sunday morning, church about 400, I said, would you stand up if you would point to Simon Prevet as the man that was, or the person that was key in your coming to saving faith? And those eight or nine or 10 70-year-old men stood up. And then I asked everybody to look around and I said, if one of these men was the key individual in you coming to faith, saving faith, let the Lord use, would you stand up? At that point, the family church, so a lot of their families started standing up and there was probably a third of the church standing up at that point. And then I asked a question, I'll never forget the scene. I said, look around. If any of these individuals were the key person that the Lord used to draw you to saving faith, you stand up. And no joke, the church of about 400 that morning, there were maybe 40 people left sitting. Simon Prevet was not a 10-talent man. He wasn't a 9-talent man. By all accounts, he was a 1- or 2-talent man who just faithfully served where the Lord placed him with what the Lord had given to glory of God and the people around We've each been given a charge. We've each been given a responsibility in the body of Christ. Fulfill the ministry that you've received, Paul said. Let's do that for the glory of God, for the good of one another. Lord our God, we are thankful that you are king over heaven and earth. And we are thankful that as we come to the close of this book that we know that the kingdom has broken in. We are thankful that you have united us for our Lord and our Savior Christ Jesus. And where that is not true this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would shed the light of your truth upon souls. There might be more workers in the vineyard to give you glory and for the good of the church and for our own good. May we fulfill the ministry which you have given to us for your honor and praise. In Christ's name.